0: at this point my other co-founder spencer the two of us started seeing our third co-founder jim spencer was playing football at ucla and had the internal dilemma of i don't know if i want my story to be based around football because i don't know if this is who i truly am and spencer went to see jim for the first time and after that session the next day he quits football why did he quit because jim helped him to elicit his values when you have a conflict it's because two values are seemingly at the same level if you still your mind you quiet your mind and say which of these values is more important to me that is one of the single most important and powerful decision making tools you can have it starts with just taking that leap man you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart.
1: Choose something that even if it fails, if it fails you are going to be proud of. It, it doesn't matter how
0: badly you got beaten in Be kind, be kind, be kind.
1: Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. It's easy to tell stories about our lives. I mean, I practice storytelling every day on the podcast, and on some level, the ability to spin a narrative is what makes us human. But sometimes stories can take us out of the moment. What may seem like harmless escapism can also be a boundary to stillness, a wall between us and the present. You just heard from Henry Mitchell, a wellness expert and the co-founder of Still Life. Henry has practiced the art of stillness throughout his academic and professional journey from meditating before big pre-med exams at UCLA to learning how mindfulness might be the best party drug around. But before still life and before he learned how to ground himself in the moment, Henry lived far away from my sunny alma mater growing up at a boarding school in England. Why the move from New York to Switzerland?
0: So my dad was working insurance and he got a job offer uh, with Zurich Insurance and my parents were living in new york at the time my older sister was six years old i was three and my dad said to my mom i've got this job offer in switzerland thinking that she wouldn't be interested at all and she said my bags are packed let's go so we moved to switzerland for three years lived in a town called Kilchberg, right outside of zurich i don't really remember much about that because three to six years old you don't really remember much and from there, we moved to a town called Cheltenham in England. Zurich had another office there, and we were only meant to be in England for three years, But the whole family fell in love with just England in general. It's a very charming place. And so we ended up staying. We stayed in England till my parents retired, and that was the same time that I graduated the equivalent of high school.
1: What was that that transition like going from? You know, spending most of your time with your family to almost like all your time at school.
0: Hmm. So, when I first got to the town, Cheltenham, I went to a school called Cheltenham College, and at Cheltenham College, there was an ability to be a day student or you could board. And in England, there's a much different approach here. It seems, uh, it seems to be, and I could be incorrect here, that boarding school is really sort of lumped in with uh, disciplinary reactive sort of uh notions you know well well i had quite a different experience because you know i get to boarding school and all my best mates were boarding you know and so i lived literally around the corner from the school but would beg my parents to be like hey can i uh board for like one or two nights a week one or two nights a week turn to four or five and then come uh the age of 13 i was full-time boarding
1: what is it like to be full-time boarding so
0: much fun (laughs) so much fun i'll tell you like when when you're 13 or 14 years old and you are sleeping in a dorm with you know four other guys and there's a dorm next door with five other people it is oh my god there is i i wish i could just sort of pull out memories and show you because it's some of the funniest things the amount of mischief and just it's mischief's the wrong word it's just banter yeah that that is something that is like i i thoroughly enjoyed
1: going from uh your first boarding school to to high school how quickly is your your career path being thought out
0: it's a brilliant question so the system in england is set up a little bit differently obviously than in the states and so you sit gcses at the age of 16 and then you choose three or four a levels so your GCSEs would be like GEs in, in the States where you do like all of your history and geography and everything, right? And then you specialize for the last two years. So I sat my GCSEs, my parents said, we're retiring. Would you like to go to university in England? Or would you like to go to university in the States? And I told them, I'd like to go to university in California. I have no idea why I said that because I couldn't have named you one university in California. Uh, it just sounded like a good time. And uh, my dad replied and said, "Oh, there's some great universities in California," and I kind of went along with it. I'm like, "Cool," uh, but the the advantage there is that I sat my GCSEs, wanted to study biology, chemistry, and maths because that put set me up to go into medicine right into university.
1: Why did you want to do medicine?
0: Um, aptitude, and <laughs> this this came from a lot of reflection and stillness in uh, afterwards, is that. I had a, an archetype of what success looked like from an early age, a mental image of what success looked like from an early age. A lot of that was based on societal glorification and parental acceptance. And I then created a fantasy. And medicine to me was, uh, it ticked all the boxes. You know, it, it, it signaled to the world that I was capable, that I was caring, all of these things that really actually if we look behind the curtain promoted my societal status you know this was a way to gain a lot of societal status and and a lot of honor you know as well so i was i was good at those things i genuinely love biology chemistry and maths you know my dad always wanted me to go into which is funny because you know he's in insurance but he wanted me to go into acting and drama because he thought I had a great stage presence. Maybe he still thinks so. That was always very interesting because that was the dilemma, but it didn't really fit, you know, biology, chemistry, drama.
1: So when you were thinking about California, how are you feeling about leaving like everything that you knew behind?
0: I knew it wasn't going anywhere. I could always go back to England. And there was a part of me where I, was, I touched upon it earlier. I have no idea why I said California at that time no idea because I really didn't have any leading information but that's when I look back and I think to myself huh maybe maybe there's some other factors that I'm unaware of at play here that that to me was is is one of the data points that I referred to because it was such a pivotal decision to make with absolutely no information and such an incredibly serendipitous one and again it was reinforced with when I I did two tours, so I came to visit and sort of toured all around the universities here, the amount of, I I remember these specific moments where it it just felt right. There was so much just uh, positive association and everything felt, you know when you're cutting wrapping paper and it's like, it's all choppy and then you get to that bit with the scissors and it goes like, Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always how it felt, you know, whenever I was thinking about doing anything with California, it was like, and so I tend to follow that, like, uh, uh, intuitively, that just makes sense, and I wasn't all that aware that that's what I was doing, you know, 10 years ago, but I'm really glad that I continued to follow that, it's what people deem as gut feeling and stuff like that, it was really not very cerebral at all
1: so going to ucla what was your experience landing on the campus
0: there was a culture shock in the way that i needed to learn uh boarding school is very rigorous very very structured so all of that structure was really helpful for producing great exam results etc etc then getting to ucla I remember it was like, I am free as a bird, you know? And uh, then I'm like, why aren't I getting good grades? It's like, oh, because I haven't implemented any of this structure because I don't have anybody looking over my shoulder, right? And when did you realize that? I was uh, <laughs> I was in three classes at the time, mass 31 being, being one of them, and got my first test back. And I think I maybe got a C-. minus. And I was like, wow, that's the first time I've seen that letter in a while. And then I went, to, the, I went to, to my advisor at the time and I was uh, a neuroscience major and I was like, hey, you know, I, uh, do I really need this class? And they're like, well, it depends on what major you want. And I'm like, okay, what are my options? And uh, they told me that psychobiology only needed maths 3B instead of 31B and it was heavier on psych and less on neuro. And that was a very, very advantageous pivot for <laughs> for myself because I was like, let's do that, drop this class and uh, <laughs> you know uh, then I was uh, off to the races at that point and it was a uh, it was good because that was some collateral damage.
1: Were you still on the pre-med track?
0: Yes I was I was I uh, graduated UCLA with the two things I wanted to do with my college career was to graduate with eligibility to apply for medical schools and to have a perfect record when it came to not missing a party that's 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 what i wanted to do and those were actually in conflict with each other
1: let's go backwards a little bit how did you get into the the party life
0: well england trains you well you know we're talking about things that england as a culture do very well and uh drinking is one of them you know really good at that i had so much fun getting into ucla and. Doing both, you know, having these two conflicting pieces to my story, it, it gave me a, an egoic lift in terms of being able to say, yeah, I'm pre-med and they're just seeing me knocking back beers or shots, whatever.
1: How do you even know that you wanted to be in a fraternity in the first place? And
0: It was the same as boarding school. I had been living with 50 guys since I was eight years old. And now it's like, oh, now we're doing the same thing, but without a housemaster. Sign me up, you know? That was, that was the easiest yes ever, you know? And it was uh, something that I really learned quickly is that community is the single most important thing for identity forging, whether that be with business, whether that be with a fraternity in this sense, but just your, just a, a group of people that you are consistently with. It's so important for solidifying story. For solidifying identity, it's it's a crucial piece to cognitive well-being, to to flourishing mental health. Do
1: you think that the fraternity environment like is pointing to like flourishing mental health?
0: No, absolutely not. Um, I I wouldn't say that at all. Uh, but as with anything, you you pick and choose.
1: What are the things that you picked, and what are the things that you left behind?
0: I realized. My junior year of college, that my relationship towards sex was more status driven than it was intrinsic. Where basically I was more, I realized through again, this is when I started to craft an introspective practice. When looking at my behavior, that I was more obsessed with walking a girl out the front door than actually who that person was and who i was with that person because i was deriving status and falling and collapsing into the trap that the women that i was with were were who i was as a person that was an indication of my quality as a person and you can see this we go right back to, to to dna my fecundity as a male right that was what i was sort of abiding by and here i am like Why am I so lonely? Why am I so lonely? And I realized that it was because I was really taking this from an outside in perspective. How are people perceiving me rather than what do I truly want and what do I truly need? And that all came into the story and the identification. I was, as I was telling you earlier, I wanted to have a perfect record. I was planning parties. I was the social chairman, right? And so as a social chairman, it's your duty to, to flirt with as many women as possible. And that's when I realized, oh my God, this is a story. This is something that somebody is attributing to me. This is a label, but I don't necessarily need to, just because that is a stereotype that has all of these attributes doesn't mean that I need to embody all of these attributes. And that's when I literally looked at this girl that I'd, uh, I still think very fondly of. And I was like, I'm, I'm so sorry. Please give me a chance because I actually want to be with you. I just didn't realize that I could change that story. I could adapt that story, and I could be a social chairman with a girlfriend and still attend every party and still really give it my all. And sure enough, I did. And one of the best pieces of feedback—I remember this so clearly. Uh, actually, it probably wasn't that clear because I was drunk. Um, but one of the guys that was the sort of the the party bo party boy poster child comes up to me. Um, pretty smashed at one point and goes you know i can speak for a few guys in the house but i'm truly envious of what you and your girlfriend have and that was really meaningful because that was the feedback that i needed at the time to realize huh the aspects of stereotype you there are a lot more fluid you know you don't necessarily need to embody every single piece you can actually just take what you want from it and then actually be you from the inside out
1: how did you continue to cultivate your practice did you start to attach a practice to that level of introspection
0: at this point my other co-founder spencer the two of us started seeing our third co-founder jim this is sophomore year spencer was playing football at ucla and had the internal dilemma of i don't know if i want my story to be based around football because i don't know if this is who i truly am and was having this internal debate and his older sister lexi had mentioned jim before And Spencer went to see Jim for the first time. And after that session, the next day he quits football. So Spencer, after that, had a lot more free time. And so we started spending a lot more time together and we started discussing a lot of this stuff. Why did he quit? Because Jim helped him to elicit his values, what he truly valued in life. When you have a conflict, it's because two values are seemingly at the same level. If you still your mind, and you quiet your mind and say, which of these values is more important to me? That is one of the single most important and powerful decision making tools you can have. Spencer and I start becoming really close and we start going to see Jim together, right? And that's where I started cultivating a practice of stillness. Because mm. Spencer and I would go and honestly, we would go get really still and then go party. Because really, you you can really be the life of the party at that point.
1: Really? It seems like it seems like those two states are opposite.
0: Yes and no. Where when your mind is very quiet, you don't have a lot of anxiety. Hmm. Anxiety is the thing that's really driving you to take another drink. Right. So this was a way where we could get very quiet inside and then intend. It's like I, I'm visualizing myself as the life of the party. And sure enough, that's that's an exercise that if we go back to athletics, a lot of athletes use. And so we'll just do that. And we'll get into these states where there's just no uh internal friction and you can again be right there right now with people so much bloody fun really weird entry point to the, like the spiritual <laughs> yeah experience.
1: yeah i wanted to get still so i could party better yeah <laughs> it right one of, uh, uh, one of the most unique entrances i think i've heard when did you stop wanting to do pre-med i would love to go to that point because i love this i i love how you're like cultivating this stillness it's allowing me to see what's important to you and what's valuable to you. But like, when did that value, that, that status of like, I want to be a doctor change
0: when cultivating an introspective practice, realizing that so much of my life was based around, uh, status. It's like, I actually was more addicted to telling people at the party that I wanted to be a doctor in the Navy than I actually was about healing people. Right. So uh, it was at that point where I was speaking a lot with Spencer and he was on another societally glorified career path. And this man is just getting wrecked with uh, with work, but working at a very prestigious company. And it was at that point that we were like, well, should we just think about doing stuff with Jim? You know, think about, you know, sharing stillness. And thank God all of us said, yeah, sure, why not? Let's give it a go. And we started renting Airbnbs, inviting our friends and just seeing if people were having the experiences that we were having.
1: So how did you start taking the business more seriously?
0: We were looking at spaces, more permanent spaces. There was a house in Topanga that we were looking at and then the one that we're currently sat in. And basically, before we got the space, probably around October of 19 was when it was like, okay, this is is really turning into something. And then when we got the space, it was, let's go, yeah, full fuel ahead.
1: What happened when COVID hit?
0: We got the space in November of 19. And Spencer and I were living in Hollywood and we were building out the space. I was looking for an apartment closer to Venice because being in Hollywood, we had to be here, at, well, I had to be here at 6 a.m. to meet the general contractor. And then for the projection, the lighting and the sound team, they were all coming in at 6 p.m. So the commute wasn't wasn't this at all. And so I basically just got all of my camping gear and I lived here for three and a half months. With that being said, we got I couldn't find an apartment. I was forcing it. I was really looking at all of this stuff. And sure enough, first three events, March of 2020, went so well, right? And COVID. And thank God I didn't have a lease because I immediately packed my car, said, Jim Peggy, I think some I think a storm's coming. And this was like a couple of days before. They're like, well, What's this guy talking about? I'm like, Well, thank God I didn't have a lease. And sure enough, there was a lot of uncertainty where we were tied to this space. And, you know.
1: And you were tied to live events. Yes. Where a bunch of people were in the same room yeah. together.
0: Clustered together <laughs> yeah. with poor ventilation. <laughs> it really wasn't a good thing for the start of COVID, yeah. you know? So it was, it was scary, but what's incredible about attaching your identity to a, a larger idea is like, okay, I guess we need to quiet our minds. And sure enough, there's always opportunity here.
1: So what opportunity do you start to see?
0: Technology. How do we deliver stillness through really what what COVID has shown us? Is the power of our technology now. And could we utilize that? We went from in-person events. That's something that I am very comfortable doing to technology. Oh, we'll just launch an app. Yeah, didn't know anything about apps at all, right? And so we just went, we just feet first right into it and (laughs) got the scars to prove it.
1: What were some of the missteps?
0: So we had a very simple app that just said, just press play. And all you did was daily, you just press play. And there was Jim and he was getting you still. And then we're like, okay, these people want to go on this whole trip through an alternate universe. And so we made this alternate universe in code, very expensive, very sexy code though. Um, and it was a journey through the planets, right? And it was complex. It was cosmetic. And it was not really about stillness. And we built it for a demographic without validating that this demographic was willing to buy a digital product.
1: So when you launched it, what was the response?
0: Uh, this looks great. you know The response, but you don't listen to the response. Look at the bloody data. And it's like we changed too many things at once. We changed the whole interface. We changed the payment method. We went to freemium without really validating why would somebody go to freemium in the first place?
1: So it wasn't working. It wasn't working. What did you pivot to? <laughs> and also are you like worried that you're running out of money and
0: yeah yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely and it's it's not working as expected the thing that was really frustrating is that we didn't have the insight to realize that just press play our first iteration was actually performing quite well we just didn't understand the numbers at the time <laughs> because we 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 weren't technical we had never had that experience the the grip of of covid started to loosen in terms of the regulation and we started doing more stuff in the space. And that's when it it became really fun because we shifted our philosophy where it's like, okay, let's really understand our customer. Let's really understand what we're trying to do. And what we're trying to do is deliver stillness. What we're trying to do is deliver the state of mind that people can find within themselves, right? We do that best in person. And then we also were experimenting a lot with the in-person how can we weave technology with these events that we're hosting and people are having these transformative experiences? How can we support them when they're not here? You know, that's the, that's the, that's, that's the, the catalyst of code. It helps people come to the stillness of mind.
1: So where's that community today? Like you, you've gone through all these iterations. You're kind of back to the things that you know that you do well.
0: We've done an awful job as a business of telling our story because that goes completely against what stillness is. Stillness is the absence of stories. When you quiet your mind, you quiet the narration. When you quiet the narration, you quiet the beginning, middle, end. You quiet that talking that's always going on in your head. When you quiet that down, there is no story. And you are, you you open this portal to the present moment. The only thing that's actually real, the only time I can actually interact with this universe, I can only do that right here, right now. So with that being said, it's like we've always been averse to telling the story because it's, it seems so counterintuitive to what we're, what we're practicing here, right? Because we're practicing stillness. It's the, the story's gone. And so what we've learned the hard way is that we think in stories as humans. So it's like, okay, let's get better at telling this story. And that's why you walked in and there's all these boxes. There's a whole ton of film equipment because we want to tell this story. We want to show the transformation of people that are going through this program and really to demystify a lot of this stuff for our current culture <laughs> and, and, and really authenticate and validate. All of this stuff is 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 in you, right? And so that's really bloody exciting. That's the experiment that we're really crafting and going for, um, really diverting all of our energy to it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe,
1: rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner.
0: Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez,
1: Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner,
0: David Saidi. Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from
1: Aiden Ashworth,
0: Nikki Mukawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menna. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel.
1: To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.com. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.